Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast. This is the podcast where we bring you a mainstream film and a cult film, both of which have some sort of thematic link, and then we discuss them both. I'm your host, film critic and comedian Nate Wyckoff, and I am excited to talk today about the snuff film phenomena. Obviously, we're not reviewing real snuff films, and we'll get into that. Our panelists today, we got another full house. It's fantastic. Up as often is Jeffrey Tucker. How are you doing, Jeff? What's up? I danced with the devil. I think he changed a little bit. He did. He, he, he told me. He, he said you stepped on his feet a lot, so he's limping now. Uh, Tad, Tad Mastrioni, how are you doing, friend? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Okay, that's a deep dig. Greg Johnson, how are you doing, Greg? I'm oh, doing great. Got my uh, microwave reheated cake. I'm good to go. Oh, yeah. There, there were, uh, mm, yeah, there were, there were cakes in our second feature in the beginning, and all I could think about was, mm, those are almost worth religion, uh, and they were not in a microwave. Uh, and of course, Greg, being our resident Nicholas Cage expert, it's nice to have him here on this feature. I had to. Mandy Longley, how are you doing, Mandy? I'm hanging in there. Hanging in there. That's sometimes that's the best we can hope for. Uh, but this is exciting. We've got kind of a, a gritty double feature here. First up is 1999's Joel Schumacher directed feature with Nicolas Cage, 8mm. Uh, and then we have the 1979 film Hardcore by writer-director Paul Schrader starring George C. Scott. We, of course, love George C. Scott. Listen to our very, very, very first episode uh, for us discussing his performance in Exorcist 3 Legion for more on that. So yeah, so uh, I'm going to go into just the plot real quick of our first feature, 8mm, which is our more mainstream feature. Although I will say at the time, Hardcore was a mainstream feature as well. It's just been very quickly forgotten uh, in, in most uh, arenas. Uh, so 8mm follows Nicolas Cage's character, Tom, who is, uh, he's a surveillance expert, but really I guess that just means he's a PI. Um, and he's hired by this super rich old socialite woman whose husband just died to track down whether or not a film she found in her husband's uh, safe, not safety deposit box, but uh, his like safe uh, is a real snuff film or not. Um, it appears to have a man with a, a gimp mask uh, brutally murder a young woman. And uh, yeah, he seems to think that it could be real, but uh, snuff films are supposed to just be legend. 
Uh, but anyway, he takes money and despite his wife's anger or uh, discomfort with him taking more jobs that she, that he can't tell her about, which we'll, we'll get to my questions and concerns about that whole thing. Uh, he goes on this and he ends up getting deeper and deeper until he finds out, of course, yes, it's real. And all of a sudden his life is at risk. Um, I saw this in theaters, I believe. And uh, I, I very much liked the film and now in rewatching it, I still like it, but I have some, a new set of eyes on this one. Uh, Jeff, had you seen this film before? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, and, uh, I can't, I can't remember when, but um, who knows? It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's what, 20, 22 years old now? Yeah, uh, probably pretty close to when it came out. So um, what is your take on it watching it again this time? Um, I don't know. I think it was probably similar. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it holds up. Um, it's definitely a, a dark journey. It, it actually, like, I was thinking about it a minute ago here it kind of we, we we reviewed cruising and um i feel like it it really is like a blend of cruising and and the other film we're reviewing hardcore hardcore um, yeah i actually thought about cruise at william freakin's cruising uh we, we reviewed it back along with uh the the supposed gay cop comedy partners uh for pride month in 2020 and uh I thought about it a lot too, because there are a lot of tonal similarities. I, fe I feel like um, both, I feel like this film definitely took some cues from Friedkin's gritty underground. And of course, um, one of the big criticisms of 8mm when it came out and to this day is that it is sort of an unofficial remake of hardcore. I, I guess I take umbrage with that. There are certainly similarities uh, and parallels, but they're distinctly different journeys in my opinion, although they have a couple of, of moments that feel similar, but we'll talk. I mean, about I think that. narratively, there's like a lot of the like similar beats. He like hires somebody in like, you know, in this world to like, you know, join him for a while and like, on his on his search yeah joaquin um, phoenix plays uh max california the ex-musician uh porn store worker um who and the dialogue is very similar like almost almost identical it's like how much do you make i'll pay you more i mean it, sure the, the dialogue well, it's, it's, in those two is is so it's, similar that it's, it's very much a prostitution parallel right uh of course and guys we'll be talking a lot about um the cinematic uh, presentation of sex work in these movies but of course we at Colton classic podcast uh support our sex workers in this world and i think personally uh it should be legalized and regulated to an extent where there can be safety and uh legal recourse for abuse and things like that i know that in the sex worker community there are concerns about that uh essentially eating into earnings there's lots of, of questions. I think that it can be done, uh, but you know, that's probably a conversation for another time and perhaps a different podcast. But uh, when we talk about these things, they are how they're portrayed on film versus the reality. Cause I think both of these movies have a healthy dose of cinematic exploitation and not necessarily as much reality. Although I'm sure there's some. Uh, Tad, what was your, I know this isn't the first time you've seen 8mm. Uh, this is one of your, my both favorite films, I think. What was your experience with it watching it again? You know, it's funny. I never made the parallel, even though um, 
anyone who knows me knows that The Big Lebowski is one of my favorite movies of all time as well. Um, fun story, my mom recently finally sat down and watched it, I think in the past year, especially with COVID. She basically was stuck in the house and was like, oh, I'm going to watch some movies. Tad's recommended this. She came out going, I don't know what the fuck this movie's about. I'm sorry. I just don't like it. I'm like, it's not for everyone, mom. It's fine. But um, it's one. even though The Big Lebowski came out a year prior and it's not quite the same theme, there's so many parallels that it, it kind of makes me wonder if anyone was sharing the same ideas as it was going on. Because um, Big Lebowski feels like a parody of eight millimeters sometimes, except that it actually came first. Cause you know, it's like, uh, the German nihilists remind me of, uh, yes, of yes. <laughs> German. Nihilist. Yeah. Um, the, the whole, like dragging your buddy along the, um, I'm getting hired by a rich person to investigate something very nebulous. And I basically have to do all the work myself one person bumbles into it. The other person absolutely just wrecks everything and, and digs everything up past expectations. But um, this is one of those movies um, I kind of consider um, this and Snake Eyes to kind of be like a, a, a duology, even though the movies almost have nothing in common. But they're both some of my favorite Nick Cage movies ever. They were, rec they, they were I think, released like one after the other. Yes. Um, and they were certainly Nick Cage at the height of his mainstream theater draw boom. Um, and, and this one, there's a lot of, of casting uh, alternatives that were at play in this movie. Um, uh, and there are also a lot of studio changes and directorial changes and things um, that, that I think affected the outcome. In my, what's, after we all get through our initial reactions, I'll talk more about why I'm going to hazard to say that I felt upon this recent watching that eight millimeter actually shared a lot of things with, uh, two, was it 2016 suicide squad? Not the, uh, the, uh, uh, the first attempt at that. And that's because of production more than story. Obviously, I don't think the story has a lot in common, but I think their production journeys and the results are, are in some way similar. Greg, Obviously, Nick Cage is your thing. This is not your first time viewing. What is your experience with this film? And how do you feel watching it again for this podcast? Um, well, the first time, I mean, I loved it. Um, it's it's definitely a more nuanced Cage performance. You get a little bit of kind of his outlandishness, but it really is one of the movies I point to if you want to see why he keeps getting work. Um, my second viewing, though, I had forgotten um, Catherine Keener was in it. And so as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, what a delight. This will be fun. I forgot she was in it. Like I remembered James Gandolfini. I remembered other people. And then I remembered Catherine Keener's part in the film. And I was like, oh, right. She's not really in the film. She's just kind of this prop for Nicolas Cage's character to call once in a while and for right. you to you know, have emotional ties to whether he lives or dies. Yeah, she, um, she's, of course, the mother of the, the girl who is murdered in the snuff film. Uh, oh, no, she's, she's his wife, she's his right? Wife. Oh, geez, I'm sorry, yeah. Kathy Keener. Yes, yeah. correct. Yes. Um, uh, but yeah, no, yeah. Um, I, I was thinking of, of uh, Amy Morton. Uh, yeah, Amy yes. Morton was great, though. She was really she was. good. She, she got her due diligence. But yeah, Catherine Keener, it's just kind of there, which was a shame. But stock, right? Yeah. Like, it's the the worried wife, and actually, that is sort of one of my my few complaints against this movie is, um, I didn't always buy her 
reticence and frustration with Nick Cage's career in this because obviously he does get into trouble and it is scary. At one point he has her and, and their, their young infant uh, relocate to a, a non-disclosed location for safety. But it seems almost like she was given the role of, well, you're the worried wife who's going to at some point just be like, it's like, it's you, it's the career or me, which is that old like detective or police story trope, you know, <laughs> like um, uh, this is too much. Cause it's sort of like, well, you, one, you know what he does essentially. Um, it would be quite normal. I would think to not really share the details, especially I know a lot of people wouldn't want to know the details of say their homicide detectives, you know, uh, love interest like that's that's something that uh not everyone is mentally prepared to deal with although and also i didn't quite understand it because it seems like until this case involving a stuff film it seems like he mostly did things like cheating spouses for centers and wealth so i don't understand the the concern and frustration she had um before that it's sort of that weird thing like it doesn't she publishes textbooks and which we get for no particular reason and he is uh, a pi essentially and does she want him to quit like it's unclear what he's not consistent and that's i no. mean that's really the writing is sure. you, you know it it feels like until he relocates them she's i mean at worst ambivalent about his job at best she just kind of you know wishes things were a little bit different way um yeah i agree <laughs> she doesn't have uh she doesn't she's not given much um and i actually wonder how much of this was added um by joel schumacher and um i think was it adam i can't remember who else co-wrote this script after uh the original script writer andrew kevin walker basically stormed out uh the reason being is that the studio the sony i believe uh the studio wanted them to soften the the dark material the tone of it which um i think tad you mentioned snake eyes i think snake eyes is one of those cases where that's a much softer movie it more is. of an action suspense thriller um this yeah. one obviously i don't know how you would soften the idea of someone tracking down a a, a, a sex worker who's exploited and murdered on film for money i don't know how you would soften that it seems actually like it would maybe be a little uh a little in, in very poor taste to do such a thing um, but I think I, I wondered if the addition of Wells character and more of that sort of like home life thing was maybe some weird attempt to, de to, to take less focus on the really nasty part. Because um, I'm certain for the middle of the film, we have Joaquin Phoenix, who does a great job as, as the young Max uh, sort of leading cage through this seedy underworld of, of uh, underground porn and cult film essentially and uh it, it's sort of a light hearted in a weird way because his character is very fun and entertaining um and so i'm sure that was part of it too and that's sort of my parallel with with the first suicide squad film um was the studio constantly was like, it needs to be, there needs to be humor. There needs to be this. And so they punched up and shot a bunch of additional dialogue that really just made the film, it, it continually berated it um, with 
you know, generic quips. Um, and it really wasn't necessary and it does detract from the product. I don't know mm. that I would say it detracts a huge amount from eight millimeter, but it does make the first half of the film and the last half radically different experiences to me. Um, I think it does build up well enough, but I feel like the first half is where I started to notice all of the things that I tend to, to dislike in mainstream films is a little on the nose. Um, we get several shots of a mysterious silhouetted figure watching Nicolas Cage in the city, which by the way, you know how hard it is to silhouette someone standing in the middle of a street at broad daylight. Like, I, I don't, I don't quite like, you know, it was just a little on the nose. Like we could have seen one car drive by and we would have known that somebody's following him. Um, it seems like, one of those things where the audience is not as smart as far as the director is concerned. It wasn't, you know, world crushing for me, but in the second half of the film, once the, frankly, the violence comes in, we see a radical shift. I don't think there's any fat on that really compared to the, the beginning of the film. And the film's a little long. It, it's a two hour and three minute movie. Um, and so, but those are the things I noticed going in. I think your, your notice of Amy Wells is definitely, She's a great actress and she adds so much just with the way, like there's that scene in the beginning where he's obviously smoking again. And she asks him like several times, like you're smoking. And he's like, no, he vehemently denies it. And then she's in his office and he's on the phone and she lifts up a magazine and there's two cigarette butts in the ashtray in his home office. And she turns as though she's gonna berate him and then just like waves her hands up and turns and walks away. Like it was such a natural, realistic moment. <laughs> Um, that I was like that, it's one of those acting master strokes that's just in the background. Uh, but it, it gave weight that frankly, I think her part in the script really didn't even merit. Um, Mandy, you have not seen this whole film before this time. Now that you've seen it, what is your take? Um, like, honestly, I was like the part, I did remember some parts of it. So I have a feeling like I did maybe see the whole thing. Either that or I like to watch some clips. The only thing I really clearly remembered was like the um, the video enhancement of the back of the person's head like in the background. Of it. Like, why would I remember that? Oh, probably because the rest of this movie was just like, ugh, like, uh, I have opinions. So <laughs> yeah, this is why we're here. But yeah, it's, I, I did not like it. Okay, like, all right. but not because of necessarily it being violent or about sex work is more like the way that it was portrayed and they did i thought and, it was pretty and i want to talk like so both of these films are essentially at some point uh although eight millimeter is specifically about a snuff tape whereas hardcore mm -hmm. i think that's one of the biggest differences hardcore is not about a snuff tape um not real even though there is a snuff tape purportedly you know uh in in the character's world um, it's that snuff, it, they say it's a legend. It's not real. Um, let's just be realistic. We've all watched enough weird movies on this. There are gajillions of, of weird perverts, most non-threatening normal people with kinks and other perverts who are not normal and potentially dangerous. There are enough of them that you know there have been snuff films made. To say that is not true or that it's fake is like a weird sort of protective like response. I think it's sort of that idea that law enforcement puts out where it's like, uh, it's, it's like denying it's what the, the UFO people have been saying all along, you know, denying it is the sign that it is it, you know, like it's just, 
of course there have been snuff films. Is it horrible? Absolutely. Is it prime real estate for these sort of um, uh, urban legend themed thrillers and horror films? Well, yeah, certainly, because it's one of those things that uh, you will never see it legally because that's insane. It is illegal to murder someone. Um, but that, that constantly comes up, these tropes that they're not real. And you're like, uh, okay, well, sure. They're not real, quote unquote. I'm sure they are real. Now, are you going to go to the store and buy one? I hope not. I hope that that's not an option for you. Um, but I'll talk about what I love about the second half of this movie. And it is dependent on the first half. And I refer, and guys, as always, spoilers. I don't think there's a big twist in this movie. There is a twist. It's not necessary. It's just part of the plot unfolding naturally. But the... Nicholas Cage's character, and as you said, Greg, it is a nuanced performance. He does not start at 10 or explode at 10 randomly. He goes from, you know, his, his, the, the, the even tempered kind of clever. Guarding um, Tess kind of character. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the guarding Tess secret service agent. And he goes by the end to full death wish, full death wish. <laughs> right. Um, there's, and so it kind of happens when we get in this movie, there is the, the murder of the sweet cinnamon roll. Max gets killed. Um, mm -hmm. And you kind of, kind of expect it to come, although you, you hope it doesn't, but the three men, really four who organized the snuff film uh, have him captured. And when they get the, the only copy of the film and destroy it, um, which we'll talk about the only copy concept in a second. Um, they kill Max and then they plan on killing uh, Nick Cage. But of course, Nick Cage's character then reveals that the slimy lawyer who organized the whole thing for this rich guy, uh, you know, claimed about a million bucks and obviously didn't pay everybody else an equal share. So uh, they turn on him. Then we get this, we get this. So the people, James Gandolfini is the like sleazeball, portly grind it's the role he was kind of born to play uh eddie the the like <laughs> casting couch slime ball of the porn industry uh and then we get uh peter stormare who is kind of an unsung hero of cinema he's played so many amazing villains uh and weird characters over the time right now he's um cernabog in in american gods but he's uh he was satan in constantine um Favorites. he was so good um he was in uh george romero's bruiser uh he was fantastic in that he's abram and john wick uh too i believe it's just very very good um very good actor and he he sort of chews the scenery in this in the best way he's this like avant-garde cinematographer who is out there bonkers very flamboyant you know wears eyeliner and like a velvet smoking long tail coat like i don't even know how to describe his look but he has this great death where uh he shoots the lawyer and the lawyer wings him with a bullet in the neck and he just slowly bleeds out saying like this can't be my death it's not cinematic <laughs> <laughs> um and it's, it's great and then of course and then we have machine who is the uh the spooky shirtless uh you know six foot tall um gimp mask wearing executioner of the film who <laughs> is played by uh comedy gold man chris bauer um i mean he played andy belfler in true blood uh, is what i most know him for but i mean he's been in a million million things i mean he was even in a couple of episodes i don't even 
you he's one of those people that if you are of the last two gener if you're a boomer all the way up to gen uh you know y you will you'll see his face and be like oh i've seen that guy um he's been in everything and he really was a perfectly cast person for that role just something else oh his and he has um the the only real monologue in the movie well not the only but the main monologue i would say in the film which is the climax um so the the plot of course is that nick cage finds out this is real and essentially with the evidence destroyed there's there's no way these guys are going to get prosecuted um plus he's done some odd things to get where to get to the truth here so i don't think it's much of an option for him anyway um and uh and so he goes death wish and actually more like punisher and starts to hunt down <laughs> the remaining two guys um he gets this is a ma- my favorite one of my favorite cinema scenes ever is this scene in uh which you alluded to greg where he has eddie beaten and bloodied at the location uh where they murdered uh mary the girl and he's telling the guys tell eddie's telling him because he he makes him tell him what the what the whole process was like and why he watched and then he ties them up with a wire and he looks like he's going to shoot him and he starts Eddie starts berating him like you don't have the guts like that old thing that so often in mainstream cinema actually works like you know they're like like you don't have the guts and then it either goes one way either they shoot him and it's like hi do you have the guts and that's like the schlocky action way or they don't have the guts and it's like I don't have the guts because I'm not like you and it's some turnaround that's not what happens here uh this this i remember seeing this in theaters being like thank god it's the most gratifying revenge flick payoff for me because he leaves and the guy's still shouting obscenities at him threatening his family whatever he goes to the car and there's this bizarre moment where he calls you i thought when i first thought he was going to call his wife but he calls the mother of the girl and tells her that men murdered her daughter this is the middle of the night wakes her up out of the blue and then asks permission to to kill them essentially um and and she's just in she's totally uh a, a disaster right she's sobbing and he just gets to the point where she's like do you love your daughter do you love your daughter like it's this weird moment where it's sort of he's at her expense he's getting whatever he can grab as an excuse to do what he's about to do and then he goes back in he hangs up the phone goes in and you get this the audio of him beating eddie to death with the butt of his gun uh, or near death as he's just standing in the aftermath holding the bloody handle and then he proceeds to dump all of the porn that eddie had in his trunk these tapes and everything all over his body and burn the place down um that was like a very powerful moment to me because it is very gritty. It went from uh, a mainstream movie that you're like, it's not necessarily as edgy as even hardcore was, I think in some ways Um, it's not really going all the way to show you what an insane situation this would be in a bizarre underworld of uh, legality that, that the porn industry can seem to be, or at least is a small part comprised of at least it goes from not wanting to really go all the way to going all the way because now our protagonist has murdered someone in cold blood and he proceeds to then plan to murder animal in a very premeditated way, gloves, silencer, the whole deal. 
And this is a long way for me to get to talk about the part where Chris Bauer's character animal uh, finally is, is being defeated and he's laying in the uh, cemetery outside his elderly mother's home with Nick Cage over him. And Nick Cage has the gun and makes him take his mask off. And we get this amazing moment where Chris Bauer takes his mask off and has the line like what did you expect a monster and puts these dorky glasses on and it's raining and he has this moment where he gets a drop in his eye and it's the most nerdy office type um moment as he's giving this speech of like i wasn't abused nothing's wrong i and it, the whole movie sort of centers on this idea of nick cage pursuing this to the nth degree because he can't he has to know why someone would do this vile act um and the ultimate answer he comes away with of course is that that there it's it's un in understandable there is no clear reason why someone would do this why someone would want this why they would pay for it why they would make it why they would, it just it doesn't have any clear purpose and that to me was a very non-mainstream film choice and if you uh, if you were to do this movie even now and expect it to play in a theater or say, I mean, maybe streaming would be different, but um, as like a main flick on HBO Max or something, I just don't see this happening because uh, I, I think I've heard this compared to the ending of Seven, which I think is ridiculous because I'm going to be um, uh, controversial yet brave <laughs> and say that Seven is not a good movie. Uh, in my oh. opinion, the main, f I know the main, I, let's send hate mail to Tad Mastroione. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, send your hate mail That's to Colton Classic Podcast, Colton Classic Podcast at gmail.com. But the reason being, sure, it has great effects and, and whatever. Um, but, and Kevin Spacey just plays himself. Um, but the end scene of Seven, spoiler alert, is when Brad Pitt, who's the good officer or whatever, opens a box from the killer and it's the head of Gwyneth Paltrow, which now doesn't seem so bad. Um, I'm just kidding. Wow. No come to Gwyneth Paltrow. Hey, goop <laughs> is ridiculous, okay? Yes. Um, but anyway. <laughs> the goop. Um, anyway, don't nobody behead Gwyneth Paltrow. I didn't say that. We don't uh, endorse murder on this channel. <laughs> no murder is endorsed. And, um, but he sees a box and then he kills the murderer because he's not going to kill him because he's a good guy and then he kills him after which it, it's it's a fallacy of a situation it's a logical fallacy to me because everyone watching the movie knows this man is an insane violent killer i mean not saying you should shoot him but what what did this whole plan come about it just it was nonsensical and it was intended to be shocking and i guess people in the theater were shocked i was not shocked i was confused if they wanted to push it all the way to true terror i thought honestly and this is just me watching a lot of italian horror films i thought it would be their unborn child in the box because that was like the crux of the relationship in his situation um having his wife's head in the box i mean yes well i i know the thought was well uh he still killed his child but it's not as you know like uh we're not going to get as many picketers essentially um <laughs> and i'm like yeah that's true but it also didn't fit with the whole motif that he was going for you gotta uh, go all the way if you're gonna do it Right. Uh, and so, and I feel like eight millimeter, the first half of the film wasn't willing to go all the way because of course they're not actually going to show any hardcore sex in an R rated film, but the end of the film could do it because it was no longer about 
any aspect of sex work. That was removed. The actual part of this film was a, 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 an exploitation of an innocent person and murder of someone being unjustly, you know, uh, no one was going to be condemned for it. And so we get this man's break where he all of a sudden makes the conscious choice to be judge, jury, and executioner in this case. And, and that sort of breaks him. And I love that when he returns home to, to Wells' character at the end, he's sobbing. He doesn't even have words. He does he sort of speak out, save me at the end, but he's sobbing. And that was, and he's clearly damaged by the end of the film. It's just a very different experience um, than, than I think the, the standard action thriller. You know, this wasn't uh, Along Came a Spider or something like no, no diss to those movies, but the template was kind of broken by the end of this. Nathan, let me let me let me put on my tinfoil hat here for a second <laughs> and have my stunning and brave moment here. Um, never mind that I, I sort of agree with you about Seven. Honestly, I've watched the movie. I enjoyed it back when I did watch it. But thinking back, I actually thought about Seven after I watched this film. And I literally was like, yeah, it wasn't that good. You're right. It wasn't that good. Um, but that's, so give me, give me some, give me, give me a, 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 a little bit of, of leeway here. When I was watching this film at this point in my life, at the, me knowing what the world is like now as an adult, as opposed to when I was a teenager, when I saw this film multiple times, um, I almost feel like Joel Schumacher was sort of on the down low, really sort of writing this movie as an, or not directing this movie as an exposure of pedophilia. And the reason that I think that is because it's very easy to see the same parallels where there are tons of people who are involved. As a matter of fact, it's something that Joaquin Phoenix's character says, where, you know, you're, you're just, you know, you're trying to make it. And the next thing you know, you're in something way too deep. And that mm -hmm. happens, you know, you, it's, it's stuff that Corey Haim talked about, it's stuff that other people sure. have talked about, and they still don't, they don't, they, they know it's there, everyone knows it's there, they don't talk about it. And even the people who know it don't talk about it because they know what the consequences will be. And that sure. kind of, it kind of throws that vibe in this movie. Well, it's unfortunate because wow. the people that end up talking about it are the, you know, QAnon Pizzagate crazies. And by the way, if you're a listener and you believe that, I'm telling you right now, not accurate, guys. Um, now, there is there is tons of terribleness in the world. There are pedophilia rings. There are all sorts of horrible things. You don't need to make something up. Um, find, find the real stuff and talk about it. There's racism. There's all sorts of awful stuff. Um, so that's interesting that you mentioned that because the only, the only clear indication of pedophilia in this movie it's just kind of a throwaway shot where he's seeing pictures of children yeah, at one of the a box that says kids on it yeah uh one of the underground porn dealerships which is it's very much a um uh kind of the underground video vibe from videodrome the, when they're looking the for bootlegs you know yeah it's the underground flea market which is really funny because the first place they go to as soon as they say snuff he has a gun point at his head and he's they're shouting at him <laughs> like rob him right but they, then, they take his but, money and get him out which is kind of the then, right response <laughs> but then the next flea market they go to basically just has child porn just sitting in a box right. out, out in the open and but but oh not that snuff stuff not the murder right. i loved that i loved all the different reactions from the yes. various like porn shops that are I like guess, snuff films. different standards you know <laughs> yeah 
And um, I do really like, too, the film where they think they've found a couple of snuff films and they're watching and they're horrified. And then they watch the second one and they're horrified. And then Cage's character is like, wait, hold on. Is that the same girl? (laughs) And Max's reaction is like, like, oh, snuff to the resurrection or whatever. (laughs) Like, it's it's sort of because you're dealing with these really awful things and you the conceptually these really awful things and i i, I don't know that because i think back to cruising again because there's a lot of sh- nighttime shots of gritty storefronts and keep in mind eight millimeter the the sort of the red lighty district that they drive through that's not real that was recreated because that has been cleaned up since the 70s cleaned up quote unquote um and so it doesn't exist in that form uh and it sort of adds to the the fetishization of the fetish communities in a way, which I think people could take umbrage with for sure, which is the idea like that... fetishification or vilification? Sure, vilification of the fetish communities. Because, um, and I mean, again, they I will say they don't ever come out and say anything is wrong beyond snuff films that's pretty clearly wrong hardcore which we'll talk about maybe that's a very different beast in that way um eight millimeter seems to it gets close to implying that things are are wrong uh but it is interesting to note that and i wonder how intentional it was on on walker's part or whoever touched this part of the script that the people who did the film the snuff film they are a small group of people and it was a one-off situation as far as we know, seems to be. Um, as opposed to some sort of large scale um, market. Like, as, as you said, like when they go to the Mexican distributors who have the little backyard um, flea market of pornography and they ask for snuff and they get the guns, they get, they're, they get robbed and kicked out. Um, like, it's, it's not okay right by most of these standards now some of them didn't seem to bat an eye it's like nope not real and you're like calm down um so i don't i don't know because there is this there is this aspect of many fetish you know uh communities where part the danger or the the uh taboo-ness the uncleanness the the vibe of that whether or not anything's actually dangerous or unclean is part of it so you have that question of well if i make it either it's either it's a thing or it's not a thing i have to choose one so which is am i going to choose is it going to be bad or is it going to be good that's not the question it's like am i going to portray it in this way like we talked about with cruising where it was like in one hand it sort of was a record of this community that was decimated and is kind of no longer there you know the um the the hardcore leather bars the cruising and the bandanas uh, which is you know i'm sure it's somewhere but it's in a different scale right and hopefully more open because you know being gay is not illegal in the united states although some people would like that uh and or lgbtqia plus you get that with with cruising it's like yes it was sort of a museum piece of these this time that's gone but also in portraying it only in a seedy light, it sort of potentially could reinforce that view of it, right? Um, I think we get that here, which I think, Mandy, you were kind of getting at, which is it's by portraying only these bad things, it's what people equate with it. Like when I think of, um, you know, 
Well, it just Mm -hmm. makes it feel like it's the whole picture. Like, oh, like this is like, it's clearly always going to be like this basement flea market. Like that's, that's where those people go. And that's how those things are sold or handled or portrayed or like, you know, and also just the idea of like, you just mentioned like things being illegal, like suppressing them uh, makes them like a black market, makes Mm -hmm. them more dangerous. Um, makes those people who have an interest in them that is not necessarily um, on the unhealthy or illegal uh, like damaging side of things like it pushes them into that territory with the people who are like exploiting or being violent or like having bad intentions sure Um, you know it's like it's just like I don't know these movies made it feel like the whole picture was like the bad Part of well, it. like that that one scene where Cage's character, I mean, you know, he's still in the montage of lo- looking for snuff and mm. he um, he walks into the room and it's some BDSM movie is playing and he kind of like pans the room and it cuts to like yeah. some guy giving a blowjob in the corner. Some dude kind of back turned to the film, kind of jerking off quietly. And by the some way, guy- how anybody would masturbate in that position, that's just bad for the back. <laughs> I'm just that that I I don't understand. That's that. where the film really lost you. You're like I, yeah, he needs, I can't he, continue. If he's gonna keep Horrible doing that, posture. he needs a weight belt. Um, <laughs> he needs some orthos in those shoes because his his stance is all wrong. I mean, get the guy giving a blowjob to come over, massage his neck a little. Like that guy just needed a lace front. That was one hard front wig. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but but yeah, that I mean that whole scene kind of yeah I think paints the picture you just did, yeah. Mandy of. It's all these basement dwelling creeps versus like, I don't know about everyone else, but when I go out and I buy condoms, I like to go over to like touch of romance or lovers or somewhere where they have a little selection and it's not a bunch of people in trench coats, like back turned, like trying not to make eye contact. It's just another goddamn retail store. I mean, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And it's easy to gloss over that and also i will say um in the internet age i mean they mention you know max's character mentions that it's dying because everything's online well truer words were never spoken in this i mean when everything is legal except for snuff essentially what in the world would these why would you have these flea markets like it's not that they Mm -hmm. don't it's not that they exist you know that they're dying out at this point in time it makes no sense to even have them exist like Mm -hmm. what little market for this there would be they would be at the horror film convention i've been there i've seen mm-hmm. these bins and stalls right like there there's no reason for them to be hidden in this way obviously or just at like the, case. the bdsm convention sure <laughs> like, the adult the adult uh mm-hmm. the adult the av uh, was it the um adult film convention that they have in los angeles every year yeah. uh, i that well they have that the awards as well yeah. the avian awards oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah like so it's you just these the things that they show it's weird that it's in such a, a weird light like mm-hmm. um, maybe it's just the film was, is a time capsule i mean yeah it's i was also it, thinking about it like because um like vhs only really what came out in like the early 80s yeah like mainstream for sure yeah so like i was just thinking about like who wrote this and the time that it was written like their like clear memory and impressions of like what a red light district looked like would be very different than what ours are like it's at true. our ages is like they would have remembered like the 70s and like having to 
the red light district that you mentioned being recreated for the film like that's what we've been like if you wanted this type of um, experience or, or media like you would be going to a place to see it or you would be having to um, acquire it in a more complex manner or <laughs> more complex yeah. equipment to view it at home than having like a videotape and it also would been like a lot more difficult or expensive to produce it without importers um tape like yeah. tape recording equipment well, as and well. I think, so i think you're right i think a lot of this film that first part of the film just like they created that red light district or sort of recreated that vibe it's sort of in a weird way pining for it's not weird actually as a cult film buff i totally understand mm -hmm. this it's it's sort of yearning to recreate the promise of mysterious sleaze and things there really is is not there anymore in that way and mm -hmm. but in doing so it seems like it's actually trivializing the potential for a very powerful scene like imagine what it would be like if instead of going and hunting for tapes their entire um, quest took them to actual filmings of hardcore pornography, BDSM, things like that, right? Um, it could have been a very different movie, but there's a mainstream limitation here. They, Sony mm -hmm. would never have put that in theaters. Um, and it already, pushing the envelope, I'm sure was, was trimmed down in some ways. Like, um, I was actually a little surprised that's that they include they they got away with uh in a way some of the lines they did like nicholas cage asking eddie you know when when he was watching the girl's murder like did you you know did you come like these these questions that are uh dirty essentially right like we just don't hear that in mainstream film very much uh and the only times we usually do it's in like a raunchy comedy because a comedy is not real and it's not threatening. So when you hear these words and these terms, even jerking off, it's, it's rarely the good guy that says it, number one, and it's rarely said at all, especially in a serious take. So it does, I think that they push the envelope when they could, but I think it's very clear that Schumacher was making this with the boundaries that he was willing to allow in line. And I, that's where the break with screenwriter Walker came. They, I don't think they've worked together since this. And it was sort of, he assumed that Schumacher would not change the script and he did. Um, so I, think it, I, I, I just want to, I want to jump in here. So I, I just on this general conversation. So I think we, we have like a chicken and an egg thing. So I think both, well, this film cruising, they, they have a tendency of showing a stigmatization uh, that like society has. Um, they don't always, I think cruising actually had a little bit more of a point of view on it than either of the films that we did in here um, uh, for this week. Uh, but I, I mean, I see your point that like you, you show only part of the picture, you, you make it seem like the whole picture is there. But I, I think that there's a tough line where it's like, okay, society has stigmatized these things. Uh, the film itself isn't, it's really just showing that stigma, not necessarily uh, reinforcing it, um, mm -hmm. even though it may unintentionally do that. Because um, it, it, I don't think there really is much of a point of view on any sex act um, in, in 8mm, except for snuff films. Like there's like very strong negative reactions to to that 
um, like across the board, but there doesn't seem to be even a character that has like a point of view on whether or not uh, these other sex acts are, you know, uh, wrong. Yeah, um, like it just like only from the sense that Max California like warns um nick cage about like oh i didn't really want to see this because like you kind of can't see it it's gonna change you like you're gonna get you know sucked in and like this wasn't who i was five years ago and like now yeah but i think that was like specifically talking about like the like the snuff stuff like he was he was specifically looking for snuff though no i I think it was just in general like taking him to the flea markets and like looking through all the things and like mingling with the the player. I don't know. I took it differently because he was looking for something very specific. Like he wasn't looking for any of that stuff. Like so, like, that wasn't what he was going to be. But going like, for, neither though. was Max California. But I felt like the way that he was communicating about it and the change to himself over time wasn't in relation to things like snuff. It was just in relation to being part of the community. I think. I think. I think you're right, Mandy. Hmm. I think. I think you're both right away. I think Jeff. I think yeah. overtly. You're absolutely right. I think on paper and the intent maybe was not to show that, but I can see, especially in the scene Greg mentioned when um, it's an enema scene, a, a dominatrix type character is giving a man an enema um, it, where he sees people committing various sex acts uh, in the, in the audience, the, the audience in like folding lawn chairs. It looks like they're outdoors yeah. somewhere. Um, <laughs> it, it's like his face, he's clearly there, there are times when he's disgusted, which, again, are we sup- normally, especially in a mainstream film, we're kind of expected to identify with the lead, um, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, so you could probably make the argument um, that it's not passing judgment, but I do think audiences who don't think about it as much are going to get that they're going to see him frown at a, a you know a grown man with a beard and a wig giving another man a blowjob they're going to be like yep i agree so i think that there's and that's the fear from the people who are like i don't want to be judged i there's no reason to judge me based on what i do in my own private life um it doesn't hurt anyone i i can see that being a trouble spot i'm not sure that it's overt enough either way in this film. I, I just, I don't think enough is there because we'll talk about hardcore here shortly where I think that there's a lot more, um, a lot more of both, a lot more of, of judgment one way or the other and a lot of um, yeah, like realistic the, depictions. Um, the, uh, uh, our protagonist very clearly has a point of view. On, sure. Uh, um, and, and also, yeah. and that protagonist, which we'll talk about, uh, is also not necessarily someone we want to identify with, which is an interesting thing that we'll touch about. But so I think, I guess my personal view, I'm going to start with our recommendations. I would recommend eight millimeter to people who like thrillers, but also people who really like um, the sort of revenge aspect of a film where they see someone is sort of a falling down with a revenge moment like there's a justice aspect but it's also more of a personal need to purge the world of something wrong so you can get back to a normal status quo um it's there's something satisfying about that as disturbing as that sounds and i think many of us have and i think that's why so many times revenge movies are even if it's not really a revenge movie in the fact that the protagonist isn't the one who's been the victim um 
it, it still is kind of satisfying. And I think that Nicolas Cage plays it very well. And I think that Schumacher's strength, his well-directed scenes, because it's all relatively well-directed, but the, the really well-directed scenes are the ones involving his really brutal um, vengeance on these men. There's, it's not held back in any way. And it is, it's more than just um, shooting, you know, a police officer show shooting someone as they're running away or, that's sorry that's real life shooting someone as they're running at them with a gun uh it's sort of it it's it's more than that uh you know it's 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 a vengeance it's a reeking vengeance you know it has to be a humiliating death it has to be there has to be a message behind it um that's done very well here so if you like that kind of movie this is probably for you um it's also relatively easy to stomach i think we're shown more reactions to horrible things than we're actually shown horrible things. Um, and that's clearly an intended thing. This actually took, I think, five cuts to get down from NC-17 before it could get rated. I honestly can't imagine what those cuts looked like because I don't see a lot here that really merits an NC-17 rating um, unless they had some type of seeming hardcore material. Uh, in there, I just don't see it. Um, I think this is one of those cases where it was a big theater run movie and those always get harder scrutiny uh, from the ratings boards. So that's that's my two cents. Let's move along around the room. Uh, I'll start with you, Mandy. Mandy, would you recommend 8mm? If so, why and to who? And if not, why? No, oh, eh, like, I guess like if you watch the preview and like you're down with what the previews showing you like go for it because it's definitely like, like we just talked about there are not that many twists and turns with this um it, it's well done the production value is good characters are pretty interesting even though you might not really identify with quote-unquote good guy because he was kind of a jerk like i don't know i definitely didn't like him that much um but yeah it's like okay but i made it this far in my life without watching it <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> all right that's a hearty yeah. recommendation hey. uh, okay. all right let's Next. go to let's go to greg would you recommend eight millimeter and if so to who um well i mean the easy start are you a nicholas cage fan this is a good nicholas cage film um that's i mean pretty simple if you're not a nicholas cage fan is this a good film i think so i mean we've discussed a little bit that it, it brings up a lot of ideas worth discussing about pornography and sex work generally, um, but it definitely is trapped in its own age. So it doesn't portray anything that I feel like we can relate to anymore to an extent. Um, but I still think it's a good movie. It's worth watching um, this, despite its shortcomings. Um, I, I think if you're, if you're, uh, you said it, I think best Nate, it's, I mean, it's a great revenge flick. It's a really good revenge flick. It, it gives you exactly what you want. So. Yeah. And I, and it doesn't stop short where so many do, you know, cause there's, there's that thing. I mean, it's the diehard thing. It's been done so many times, right? They can't actually, uh, actually diehard is not a good, not a good case because it's not um, the same, but you know they what? Don't kill um, the guy. Um, and then until he comes back with a knife, then they kill him. Right. There um, has to be some reason. Yeah, if, if you saw the more recent Nicolas Cage revenge film called Rage and you liked that, I think this is a nice precursor to see where he kind of developed a similar character. So, 
And as I mentioned it too, as you said, sort of dated, it's, it's weird because like I said, I don't think it's a time capsule of actual place and time, but it is a time capsule of mentality and impression of things. Like, um, the, I'm sure many people were like, especially those of us who drive down Hollywood Boulevard every once in a while, like, like, huh, I wonder where that is. Like it could exist, but it doesn't. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's old. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, I was thinking of the recent film, um, with uh, Rami Malek, the, the Little Things um, with Denzel Washington, Jared Leto. Um, it, it's been controversial because it also has a dated feel. It is very much in the vein of the sort of early 2000s, late 90s action cop revenge detective seven thrillers. Um, there's there's some gruesome content and it's, it's exploitative, although I don't think the mainstream would call it exploitation. Um, but it's it's good for those people who watch, you know, IDTV all day uh, as well. Tad, would you recommend Eight Millimeter and why? I absolutely would. Um, this is this is one of those movies that I can sit down and watch anytime, and I was more than happy to watch this again. And I hope that we get to revisit Snake Eyes sometime soon. Um, this is uh, I was going to make a joke about how. It's funny because Joel Schumacher is well known for basically making the worst Batman films of all time. Whereas you look at this movie and go, if given the right script, he could have made an amazing Batman movie. What the fuck happened? And well, I'm sure that it had something to do with Warner Brothers. But uh, needless to say, this is this is a, a movie I would recommend to people who love thrillers. Uh, I'm not going to grab the low hanging fruit of uh, if you like movies about pornography, Nick Cage, or just uh, really, really cranky moms. But uh, what was I, what, what was I getting at? Yes, I know exactly what I was getting at. Danzig, don't forget, you were featured in this movie. I don't know if you knew it, but keep in mind, the next time you make a movie, and I hope we get to review his new one soon, this is how you make a, a, a good thriller with some real visceral fear in it learn yeah the machine character played by chris bauer is essentially just modeled after any danzig fan well he had a danzig poster he had several danzig posters Um, i'm actually surprised he wasn't blasting danzig while he was like running around with them in well walking around in the in the house trying to shoot him well because at that point they were like danzig's like do i get to be in the movie and they're like never mind um (laughs) yeah so moving along, Jeff, would you recommend 8mm? And if so, to who and why? Uh, I'll give it a soft recommend, um, uh, a flaccid recommend if you, uh, I knew, if you enjoy I knew, it that I way. I knew that was coming. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an okay film. Um, I think that uh, there are certain things, like I love the scene, actually the scene where Danzig music was not playing. It was an Aphex Twin uh, Fuck you, jam and the like the track starts to like skip it's like a old record player uh like creating this like really like good ominous like slasher film like beat like uh, yeah it's not and even then, skipping it's just ended and so you just hear yeah, the slight you know the th- 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 as it makes yeah. it silent rotations sorry i i'm not a, a yeah. record enthusiast i don't know the proper <laughs> terminology I understand. <laughs> no. folks despite the beard jeff but, is not oh, a hipster wait. That reminded me. So sorry, I'm gonna cut in to your. So I found the most believable part of this movie to be when the gimp mask is removed and he's just a dude that looks like he works in IT, 
And you're like, yeah, okay. Now I it's that same thing of like, who are the internet trolls saying these horrible things? And you're just yeah, like, oh, like, it's oh. it's it's Dave in accounting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's anyway. It's totally that was that. also not enough fart jokes. That's that's mm, it. I, it's yeah. true. There were not any. Not high class enough for that. So anyway, so I thought that scene was great. You know, like this the the music like comes back full on. Uh, clearly, he just uh, you know was back at the record player. Nick Cage turned up. Anyways, there's some good scenes like that um, that make it really go. I think the beginning is really, like the very, very beginning is really strong. Um, and it, it kind of can draw you in. And um, it it does get a little boring at parts for me. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an okay thriller, I think. All right. Well, that wraps it up for 8mm with our friend, deep, 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 Fiend of the Pod, Nicolas Cage. Uh, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we will talk about 1979's Hardcore. Hey, cult and classic crew, friends and fiends of the pod, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nate, I don't have any money, and if I did, I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the cult and classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support cultandclassicpodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist. And also zines like classic issues of Rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews, as well as brand new Cult and Classic Podcast family publications that uh, are brand new. So you'll get them first in line. These are awesome, awesome things that you can get just by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast for as little as a dollar a month you can get videos of our episodes you can see all our lovely shining faces as well as exclusive content like uh, extra episodes film reviews book reviews and things like commentary by us on our short films which you'll also be able to see if you want to pay a little more five dollars a month per se us then you get an awesome autographed custom trading card these are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought and they're autographed by the artist these are exclusively for cult and classic podcasts and inspired by our episodes they you can't get them anywhere else except through us only five dollars a month you get it shipped right to you shipping is free if you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for cultandclassicpodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of Rearded zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Cult and Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus there's usually extras like pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You are spending money on awesome swag and you're supporting Cult and Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Cult and Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just going to say it. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. And we are back. Listeners, we are touching on Paul Schrader's 1979 film, Hardcore, starring George C. Scott, um, Dick Sargent, 
here's the thing. I had never heard of this film. Uh, and I actually only came upon it because I'm a George C. Scott fan and I was checking through his catalog and I was like, oh, this is quite a cast uh, and quite, uh, you know, and Paul Schrader, obviously he wrote Taxi Driver. Uh, I, I was just like, okay, let's take a look. Uh, and then I found that it's been re-released on Blu-ray. Um, it's actually uh, a British copy um, of Hardcore from the... Uh, indicator line which is quite nice it, i have to say let's just throw this out there too before i forget uh we reviewed eight millimeter on dvd because the blu-ray is out of print and i have to say it is an early dvd uh release and it's not good quality at all um it's quite low res for uh a release and eight millimeter whether you loved it or not, deserves a high def release. So I'm looking forward to that new transfer that has to be out there somewhere. Also, the German version ran about nine seconds longer than the American version. I don't know why, but I'd like to see what that nine seconds is all about. Uh, on the other hand, hardcore, uh, I watched the indicator cut. Uh, everybody else watched the low res uh, cut because uh, indicator has a fantastic Java protection program, so I could not effectively stream it to them at the moment, uh, but it is purchased and beautiful. This, unlike 8mm, the uh, a sort of adult red lighty area of town is real uh, in this film, and it is uh, Hollywood, and it is very, and various other towns. I think they're Hollywood, San Diego, and San Francisco at one point in this movie. It's it's very beautifully shot. Uh, I thought that this movie looks great. The movie itself is kind of a complicated beast. It feels longer than it is. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. Um, I'm not, not, not a dig on any of its content, but George C. Scott plays a uh, Calvinist father uh, whose wife left him and his daughter and his daughter who is, I She's not very old. Uh, so she's supposed to not be very old in this film. She's underage, don't know when, somewhere early teens. Um, and her daughter goes on a trip from their home in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Grand Rapids, Michigan, excuse me, to uh, Hollywood, to a Calvinist convention of some kind. Now, for those of you listening who don't know Calvinists or Dutch reformists, which is a, a specific group of Calvinists, I believe, Calvinists are... Um, they're a Christian sect that believe primarily the difference would be uh, predetermination. So God has determined that certain people will go to heaven at the end of times and certain people will go to hell. And there is literally nothing you can do to change that. The logic being that God knows everything. So when someone is created, he obviously knows where they're going to go in the end. So you really can't do anything. It's a very, from someone who is not a Calvinist, I will say it is a very strange concept because it makes all of your actions on earth seem somewhat irrelevant if everything is predetermined. Very nihilistic. It's like it's a nihilistic a, religion. You know, yeah. it sounds nihilistic, but it seems to be used in the opposite way, right? Because it's sort of yeah. a protection against anything you do. If I'm the chosen one, I'm already going to heaven. It doesn't really matter what happens uh, around me or to anyone else, which is sort of when we think of nihilism, we think of nothing matters because in the end, it's all the same. Uh, <clears throat> so, Anyway, he's a Calvinist. His daughter goes missing on this trip uh, when they're at uh, Knott's Berry Farm. There's an older kid that she seems to have met. They don't know anything about it. Uh, the police force says, look, 
you'll find her or you won't. There's, we have two detectives, but they can't just don't get up hope essentially. So they said, you can hire a PI. So he hires a PI and Peter uh, Boyle is the PI. He's of course, very well known often for comedic roles. He was uh, in red heat with Schwarzenegger and Belushi. Um, he was wizard and taxi driver as well. And of course he was the monster in young Frankenstein. Uh, he's the detective kind of a sleazy guy, uh, but actually he seems kind of good at his job. Um, he finds that uh, there has been an eight millimeter film, uh, an adult film of uh, George C. Scott's character's daughter having sex with two young men. And this crushes George C. Scott, um, but he eventually flies to Hollywood, fires the detective when he finds the detective having sex with uh, a, a sex worker. Um, and who we assume is underage of some kind. It's, it's a weird situation. Anyway, he goes through and basically he tries being his straight lay self finding information in the red light district and he doesn't get it. And he kind of gets beat up when he flips out on a prostitute. And then he starts to adapt. Uh, he dresses differently. He acts differently. He takes on fake persona seed information. And then he puts in a classified ad uh, hiring young men for an adult feature. He has this great stretch of scene where he has a, a wig and fake mustache. My favorite part. Yeah. And um, so close to a fart joke. Just, <laughs> sorry, there's, I was trying to lighten the mood a little bit. There's actually, like, some, yeah. there's actually some great lines in this movie, regardless. We'll talk about them. But anyway, uh, and then he finds a guy who is in it. And from there, he meets uh, Nikki, who is a sex worker, who he pays a bunch of money to um, to take him around San Diego, San Francisco, wherever, as they try and find the guy that made the movie with his daughter. Uh, ultimately, it's led to... Uh, I, are they back in San Francisco or San Diego? I can't remember where they are. I think it's San Francisco. San Francisco because of the hill, which right. also I thought was a great scene. There aren't hills anywhere else. No. There is the hill in San Francisco. In, in movies. In movies. Oh, there's yeah. hills nowhere else. Uh, Notting Hill. Huh. Uh, so when we get back. So anyway, um, turns out that this guy, Todd, who made the movie and has been hanging around with his daughter, he went recently to Tijuana with a uh, Hispanic man or Latinx man named Rattan. And Rattan is well known for sketchy things like selling people and maybe snuff films. We don't know. Uh, George C. Scott ends up seeing a film that appears to be a snuff film where Rattan kills uh, a man and a woman. And then, uh, which is a very weirdly shot little video segment. And then um, George C. Scott beats up Todd finds out where Rattan is, goes to find Rattan, and sure enough, his daughter is there with Rattan as a sort of date. Um, chaos ensues. The uh, Peter Boyle detective shoots and kills Rattan, and George C. Scott finds his daughter. And they have this exchange, which is very interesting. And again, spoilers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she's cowering in the corner, and he's like, it doesn't matter what they made you do. And she says, they didn't make me do anything. I wanted to leave. Uh, which opens up a whole new side of inquiry in the audience's mind um, and as to what his life really is like, because he's been sort of a not great guy 
right? He's kind of nasty to Nikki, who's this likable young sex worker that has been helping him along. At one point when she won't tell him where Todd is, he hits her and is going to punch her again. And, uh, and then afterward he says, don't worry, I won't forget you. Well, the daughter ends up being like, well, I don't really want you to leave. He takes her up, puts her in the police car. And then what does he do? He offers Nikki money. Well, that is an odd thing to do. And that's a very important scene because potentially she's seeing understandably him and who has a house. He has a job. No one, there's no pimp in his life. Right. Um, it, she sees him as a way to normalcy to really actually have a different life. And what does he do at the end to help her? He pays her like she probably assumes uh, a John would pay her. Um, and she turns around and leaves and he goes to the detective and says, can you get her some money somehow? And the detective just says, leave town. This isn't, this isn't where you belong. And he does. He presumably does. And it's the original ending of pretty woman uh, that never made it to screen, right? The famous ending where he doesn't come back for uh, uh, his, you know, his prostitute of the week, essentially. He doesn't come back for her. Um, that's the original ending. People thought it was a bummer, even though it is a bummer. It's not realistic, but it's a bummer. Uh, so they didn't like it. This has that ending. And it really is upsetting, I think, because the most likable character in the entire film seems to be Nikki, the uh, victimized prostitute. Um, and Paul Schrader uh, was raised, I believe, Dutch reformist. Uh, Paul Schrader has said he doesn't like this movie very much. Um, and uh, there's some reasons. The original ending of this film is not that George C. Scott's character gets his daughter back. The original ending is that he finds out his daughter died in a car accident completely unrelated to her pornography. Um, hmm. I would have totally liked that more. The, huh? I would have liked that more. <laughs> sure. And I think a lot of people would, because it is sort of, uh, it leaves him in a different place, right? Because I think that the ending they have actually does work on some level, but there's a reason why there's so much confusion and unsureness, unsuredness about this film among reviewers and viewers. And I think it's because there's a lot of pieces and not all of them are focused on very clearly. And I think that the actual, when they filmed this movie, there's a lot of backstory on this, much like Cruising. When they filmed this movie in the very religious town of Grand Rapids, Michigan, partially, uh, they titled it Pilgrim because they didn't want to upset people there and get a lot of no's on filming locations when they called it hardcore. But I actually think Pilgrim is a much better title for this film because it helps center the film under what seems to be the actual intent, which is uh, George C. Scott's rigid faith that allows him to essentially do whatever he wants to make himself feel right at the expense of everything around him. And this current ending, the actual theater ending of this film that Paul Schrader hates, sort of reaffirms that in the bleakest way possible. He's not even unsure anymore. Like if, if, if his daughter had died and it hadn't even been necessarily related to pornography, he's left in a chasm of blackness. God has failed him. He couldn't possibly, how could she not be the chosen one like him going to heaven? This doesn't make any sense. Or is she in heaven? But how am I supposed to live without her? All those questions don't exist for him anymore. He's literally allowed 
to completely 100% revert to his belief system because his daughter's back and she's safe and he can leave. And now Nikki does not matter anymore. Hollywood does not matter anymore. He's going to go home. He's going to throw away the TVs in his house and they're going to live this Calvinist life. Presumably that's one possibility but this ending does that and i think personally that is a much bleaker ending because it speaks to the tendency to uh, to not change right whereas if she died and he didn't even there was no reason it was a faithless reason or a faithless situation he's left with this great wall of why which can lead to some sort of in some maybe at least it could lead to some awakening of you know, uh, of, of, of reality and uh, charge against his faith. But we don't have that in this one. It's a really, really, I found it to be a very bleak ending. That's the film. And there's lots of different pieces in here and different back and forths and set pieces, all sorts of different stuff um, that sort of pulls away from the focus on religion. But let's, let's start with you, Jeff. What was your expectation going into this movie? And uh, now that you've seen it, how do you feel? Uh, I had never heard of it, never, you know, never gave it a thought until I pushed play. Um, so I had no expectations. Uh, I actually really liked it for the first like half. Um, it felt like it had like a trajectory with like some character development that was going to come and like some interesting things. Uh, and that ending really was bad. It just, it just was I mean, you you detailed a lot of the, the problems with it. I thought this character was actually going to change. <laughs> he was going to have an arc. And then he was going to be like, oh, sex workers are people too. They have feelings and uh, needs and, uh, you know, other desires, like other things that are going on. They're not just that one thing, um, which is what, like, Nikki was, like, kind of trying to... Uh, you know, instill this idea in him, but it just, it just didn't go anywhere. <laughs> we get this weird action ending to this film. It, yeah. I don't even think it doesn't go anywhere. I think it goes backward. Right? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 yeah. Maybe like a full reverse. I don't know. I thought it was just nothing, but yeah, maybe you make a good point. Maybe they, you pop it in reverse and, and um, cause, cause his like his conversation with his daughter is all, also kind of in, in that vein where it's like, um he's still just like oh somebody must have forced you into doing this and she's like no nah um but like that conversation was short and like also kind of nothing like there, there wasn't even enough there to um it's a weird scene right because he walks in he says i'm here it doesn't matter what they made you do she says it didn't make me do that you made me leave i was never good enough for you and there's actually it's quite intelligent uh, on paul schrader's part i think to show almost no interaction he never even he barely even speaks to his daughter before sending her off he actually speaks to his niece her mm -hmm. friend every time and doesn't always speak to his own daughter standing right next to her and it, her niece is blonde pretty not that this actress uh Ela davis isn't pretty um she's very pretty she's she looks like a child just, you know whatever um but he makes that point and so when she says these things he's and you've recently found out that uh his wife and her mother left him presumably because of his strict views uh all these things start to come up these questions like holy shit like 
he seems like this straight-laced guy, but is he a good guy, right? And we kind of wondered that anyway, because of, as you mentioned, his some of his conversations with Nikki are so like, I'm better than you. Like really, like he's, that's his, he's so focused on that, you know, um, even though he's diving headfirst into this rabbit hole of really deplorable actions, uh, it's it's interesting um greg what was your take on this movie i'm gonna assume you guys haven't seen this movie because it it's not particularly well known these days um no i i've never seen it um i guess i thought it would be more hardcore going in based off the title i expected you know i i started with eight millimeter it was the film i knew i was excited to rewatch it figured i would do hardcore thinking that would be a little more of the the culty one the one that kind of is like okay here's something wild and it it was just kind of milk toast to me. It wasn't um, wild. Um, I did like George C. Scott's uh, ridiculous fucking get up when he was doing um, Andy Kaufman as Tony Clifton or Seriously, whatever the fuck he was doing. I'm, I'm actually going to, um, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't recognize him. I didn't either. I, it I was like, like, I didn't recognize him. And I'm like, how could I not have recognized him in that crappy ass rug that matches his mustache 100%? Like, it, you know, like if chopped the back off like my reaction was like, how long has he been there that he grew a mustache? <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. If if we're gonna talk if, earlier, we talked about you know eight millimeter not really capturing what a porn store is like. This really captured what people thought like these porno directors all, were. These are yeah right. These are actually all real porn locations as well. Oh really. Um, Okay. Yes. And so this is what they looked like um, and what the fronts looked like before they were cleaned up. And interestingly enough, George C. Scott was actually not happy about it. He didn't know they were going to be filming those these places, um, <laughs> which cracks me up because that's a very, that's the exact reaction his character would probably have. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I enjoyed it for the most part, but honestly, the ending took me from like, hey, give it a watch to like this movie was a waste of my time. Um, the grease ending of, you know, the guy learns less than nothing, if not nothing, and the woman makes all <laughs> the change. And for him to like, oh, well, I guess that's over. What do you want? Some money slut? Like, <laughs> like yeah. what What was the point? What was the point of, of him just kind of treating this sex worker like shit for mm-hmm. no real reason and, and connecting, but then just skip in town um well, it's I, interesting yeah oh, keep going oh no i'm just gonna say it, it honestly like i kind of sat watching the credits like did did we did we watch some kind of like theatrical release and there's actually a director's cut or something where oh no like there's there's more like like maybe nate gave us like a cut off version <laughs> of the film like oh there there was a jump in there somewhere where he turns around and goes actually i realize i'm a huge asshole please come live with us and let me help you out thank you so much yeah i and so and it, I, it's getting to the point like it's where we have to mention that I do believe that there's, we've talked about this before, Jeff, we had this discussion um, recently about a film where is it art in that it has a purpose, but it's not enjoyable? Or is it entertainment where I sense some sort of relief or positivity coming out the end that I can move on with my day? I've somehow been gratified. This, I don't hate this ending because I do think that whether or not Schrader wanted this originally or not because he did i guess cave into studio pressure on this ending um 
he still got the message across to me that uh, religion is not necessarily what it's cracked up to be because this is what happens. And if you think people will change based on your experiences, it's not going to because his experience fits into this nice tidy thing. I mean, he's been tested essentially. Like there's that insane conversation. So Dick Savage is his brother-in-law uh, or Dick Sargent is his brother-in-law in this movie for no particular reason, with just a super horrible haircut. And um, like, and that's me talking right now. If you guys look at me, uh, he, he's, he has these lines like, um, you can't think about Kristen all the time like after several weeks of her being missing and then like uh, God works in mysterious ways. And I'm like, I thought he was going to deck him right then. Um, like, cause mm. then he's like, you have to keep your faith. And he's like, would you? And like, it's totally viable, right? Would you like, this is a Job story, but the, it meanders so all over the place with their travels. Like in that way, it's very much like eight millimeter. They go back and forth between locations trying to track something down that could have been trimmed and changed because if the focus was, I think our reading of it would be much more satisfying if we didn't have to dig for the religious intent. Because there's some great moments where it's clear that Schrader was trying to put that in there from his probably personal experience. Like um, the first scene where uh, Nikki and he are waiting at the airport, the first scene where he tells Nikki that he's a Calvinist, a Dutch reformist, and he describes TULIP to her, right? Which is this acronym for what, essentially what they believe. Um, and, and it boils down necessar uh, necessarily for this conversation to people are either, pre are either fated to go to God or go to hell, right? When, they, when it's over. And she says, that seems crazy. And he kind of laughs, he's jovial at this point. He kind of laughs and he says, I guess it does, but not from the inside. And she has this awesome bit where she's like, well, nothing seems crazy from the inside. You ought to listen to perverts. There was one guy, he almost convinced me to have sex with his Doberman, right? Like, and that's totally accurate. And he said, it's not the same at all. And you're like, no, it's exactly the same. Like what she's saying is literally, what, right? Like, because when you're in it, of course it's crazy. It sounds nutso. Um, and I also, so want to, I'll get on that later, but it's, um, moments like that showed me like, oh, that's the focus of this movie. Because like Greg said, I enjoyed this movie based a lot on this. First off, the directing is actually quite good. The cinematography I thought was brilliant. Um, these, the, the progression of the actual detective work is pretty slow, especially compared to eight millimeter, which is crazy because it's 20 minutes shorter. Um, but I felt like there's a lot of, we get a lot of things outside of the actual search for his daughter before we actually get there. And, um, but it's like in, in the way that cruising is, it feels like a time capsule. Like I'm looking around, like, this is interesting because I don't even know this. Right. Um, I really liked him going into the different, um, uh, brothels basically. And they would all give like this similar spiel when he walked in of like, this is a, this is a place for body to body contact. Um, anything in addition, it's $20 an hour. Anything. Or half I loved anything. that workaround. That was yeah. so clever. And it, and you know what? And it, it rings true, right? Like I'm sure that sounds plausible that that's how it would be. I mean, it's like an escort service, right? Like, you know, you're, you're not paying for sex. Anything yeah, it, you guys do is between consensual adults. Basically it's a cuddling club. And then you can talk about whatever else you want in there. Right, exactly. If you want something, tipping's accepted. 
Um, and, um, and also, it's a weird way, all of the women in those things that he went to were so kind. Like, yeah, people would be take, like, people become obsessed with this because how often in our daily lives is someone just like outwardly like, so accommodating it's it's actually unnatural in that way right like to be so i'm like yeah of course like really listening to what you want right they're like, like what do you want baby like tell me like I, you know like wild. i'm here and, to and listen like <laughs> what yeah. like, I totally, i'm like and maybe too because it, we're still in quarantine essentially and like you know unless we're in texas god forbid and um i love you texas <laughs> listeners i really do i just please wear your mask stay safe and uh but yeah, it was like, it's, it was wild. I was like, man, I, I, I could see now how people, you know, use sex work and potentially at the expense of their, you know, non-monetarily exchanged relationships. Um, because if that's anything like it, I could totally see it. He's sort of impervious to it. George C. Scott's character is like, you know, uh, as he says to Nikki, he's like, I don't care about anything. She's like, what, you know, I don't care about any of that. What do you care about? Your daughter. And that's sort of an excuse, right? It feels like an excuse because if he doesn't care about anybody else um, or anything else, he just cares about his daughter. Why does he want his daughter in that way? Is it because he loves his daughter and he wants her back? Or is it because his life it can't continue the way it's been going safely in this premeditated, predetermined uh, existence if his daughter's missing or worse in porn, right? So it's an interesting moment. Tad, what did you think about hardcore? I thought about uh, millions upon millions of fathers now who have to deal with their, the fact that their daughter uh, has an OnlyFans and is making lots of money. <laughs> that's the modern day um no really um I, i'm always excited for the latest episode of man getting hit by football because i do love george c scott and uh i i honestly this this was a one of those ones i didn't know what to expect i usually don't know because as i've as i've mentioned in several podcasts i don't do my research ahead of time i like to be surprised and be caught into the moment of what the hell nate has forced me to watch this month this week <laughs> and uh this one was uh, God slow, the first 20 minutes. And now keep in mind, full disclosure, I have lived in both of these worlds in some way, shape or form. My life now is very much that scene in, in Grand Rapids with the family all gathered up in Christmas. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot. It's just that, that nice jovial religious feel that you get, you get at the, at the Christmas time when you're around a family that is, you know, fairly spiritual. I, ha I live that now, but I used to live a much skeezier life where I was around amateur porn stars and all that. Morning and... star apartments. <laughs> yes. Uh, I didn't live with any porn stars, but I'm pretty sure there were probably a couple that lived a few doors down. Um, it's still around, Nate. Morning star is still there. I know. And it's, I know. Uh, Shout yeah. out Concord, New Hampshire. Woo. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was... Um, it's I, I I understood the 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 cinematic juxtaposition that was kind of important, even though it was slow as balls, of just let's put you in that frame of mind where you are in that life, where your life is basically like every day it's pretty much the same thing. You've got a nice tight knit family that you know they, they, you've got this. It's a very it's a very uh, vanilla life. Then the next thing you know, shit happens. 
and you are literally thrown into the craziest shit you could possibly think of. And Nate, how long have you been living in California? Now, at this point, off and on throughout your entire off life? Off and on. If you count them off and on, then I don't know, 15, 50 years. years. Do you even know anymore? Six years. No, I've been, yeah. and I've, I've, you know, yeah. Uh, I mean, when I first when I first came to California uh, and and I was living in Huntington Beach, one of the first jobs that I looked at was uh, a, 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 a a PA on uh, an in home porn studio. Um, <laughs> and by the way, PAs are often called moppers for a reason. Uh, yeah, oh, I didn't boy. get that job, uh, and it's probably for the best. This would be a very Nate's, different podcast. Nate and I have had had very eclectic work. Um, our, our work experience overall is very eclectic. Yeah. Until um, I found the very steady, high paying job of podcasting, it has been a <laughs> roller coaster ride. Um, so, um, the, I, I mean, I only lived in California for a little over a year, but that year that I spent there, just it's a completely different planet from, you know, how I grew up and all that. And, you know, if you are a flexible, personality you can adjust very quickly i mean the first time i ever went to vegas was one of the greatest experiences of my life you know it you you can do anything at any time of the day or night you go into the local fat burger and the uh the guy who's taking your order is wrapping your order back to you and I'm like this is great you can't get this back home um can i just mention the fact that when i went to las vegas with tad he had just bought a mini laptop from asus or acer i believe and uh yep. and he would not stop using it no matter where we were, it was the, he was obsessed with it. See, now that, I, now that I make my career in tech, I can safely say I want to get away from a computer as fast as fucking possible and Nate won't let me. <laughs> point be, but the point is, is that I, I understood that juxtaposition, but this movie was not doing it for me throughout most of it. I, I did start getting into it once he started going on that sort of hero's journey to get his daughter back. And especially, I really appreciate it again, cause I'm, I always go back to the big Lebowski at some point, as soon as he gets to the, to the point where he's starting to interact with the, the people in the industry and he, and he starts almost adopting that um, personality. I, I just couldn't help that the porn star, not the porn star, the porn producer, essentially, with like the open vest and the chain yeah. and all that. I was like, oh, it's Jackie Treehorn. Jackie Treehorn's making a cameo in this movie. Um, it, it's just, it's, that vibe always comes back to these movies that I love so much. But, but then again, again, it's like that middle part of this movie, I really loved. I, I thought it was great. I thought I, I was really seeing some character development where he was starting to really come out of his shell and realize that the world was way bigger than his very myopic view of it. And that's, that is, that is a sort of a Calvinistic thing because determinism is, uh, is kind of a, a trapping. Uh, it's, it's a very, in, what's the word I'm looking for? Insulating uh, faith, you know, and faith, religion in general uh, does its job best when it forces you to ask questions rather than act like it knows all the answers for you, you know, and, and, it's a, it, it, you, if you can't ask the question, you're never going to get to the answer. No one's going to give it to you. The answer is, turns out it's different for everybody. So suck it up. You're going to have to, you're going to have to learn, but um, overall, yeah, I, there's nothing else that I can say about this that, that uh, Jeff and Greg haven't already said. Basically I got to the end and went, what the fuck, what was the point? 
I just, I just, I just, can we get back to the, the porno directing? Cause that part was interesting. That's uh, it. That, that's basically it. I got, I got nothing else for this film. Fuck it. All right. I'm sure we can drag some more out of you. Mandy, uh, what was your expectation? And now that you've seen it, what do you think? Woo! Well, my expectation, I think like other people's, is I was expecting a little more hardcore from a movie named hardcore. Um, is just generally like underwhelmed by kind of the whole thing from start to the very bad ending um i found myself being more interested in the scenery like in the background there's actually like a giant um star wars like plaster on the side of a building like not a billboard but like like a big advertisement i'm like sweet that's right it's like 1979 yeah like just using the world like as it was um and then of course like the mustache that we've all talked about also solid gold um but right around that period of the movie it was kind of like halfway in the film i also started wishing that um rodney dangerfield had been cast as the main character oh. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, my. My, my mind wandered a little bit on that um throughout that would the, have changed the, the dynamic film. so good it would like i was like oh it'd be great um yeah i was just like overall like underwhelmed i like uh do a little rewrite i would have liked to see like more breadcrumbs for this dad to follow like more hints of his daughter like in this world maybe they find like a flyer with her on it or maybe there's just some rumors of something you know like just a little bit more to like pull him in and to add to the tension about what might be happening to her or what her motivations are and then like also tease out a little bit of like why those would be her motivations based on her home life like upbringing environment kind of thing so that we had a little bit more when they got to this final scene they chose to go with um with the interaction between the daughter and her father um because it was just it was very like like i don't want to say flat like it just didn't have much meaning to it um you could like a lot was implied um and speaking of that like a lot being implied and like there not being a lot to it i felt that this movie was very much like the embodiment of like a midwestern conversation where like the people don't necessarily look directly at each other they're sort of like kind of half turned away from each other like talking about the weather but maybe not even the weather on the same day and like no one really knows what's going on like that's that's what well, we this whole get movie that felt like, like right me. in the beginning right before yeah she even goes he's george C. scott's characters yeah. at his business a furniture making business yeah and a woman has been designing his his office area and mm-hmm. it's got this big bright blue logo behind it and he's like oh, it looks great is it too bright you think no, I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. I wouldn't have hired you if I didn't trust you. Yeah. And he has a mm-hmm. whole other conversation. You still did that guy. He's a good guy. Don't let him go. Yeah. Maybe we yeah. can tone it down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. We should tone it down a bit. Okay, great. Like that whole like exchange, it, it right. really tell you a lot about him up front. I, it's mm-hmm. funny because I get the, I get the vibe all around, not in this panel, but also in many of the reviews online, which is, I think we kind of expect this to be a different movie because Mm -hmm. it ultimately is not a detective movie. I think, and I think that's Mm -hmm. the problem is that it's Mark. It's not even that it's marketed. It thinks it's a detective movie, Mm. but really it's about this guy and his, 
you know, it, it, so Broken Flowers by Jim Jarmusch with uh, Bill Murray has, I probably mentioned on this podcast, I adore the ending. It's this weird meta ending where he gets a letter from a former love and he's been like a Lothario his whole life that says like, you have, you have a son and he doesn't know who it's from. So he goes on like this road trip to the, all these different women to try and find who it is. And he finally thinks he's found it and it's not, and he doesn't know what it is. And he's sitting there, like, standing in the middle of the street, like totally like dumbstruck as to what to do. And this guy drives by and he looks and it's Bill Murray's real life son driving mm. by. And that's it. That's the movie. And you're just like, totally. It, it's, it's sort of, it makes you as the viewer ask questions that you don't know how to answer and it upsets you in a way. And I think it's kind of the purpose because you're like, I couldn't possibly know this in the realm of the film. Um, but also, and I think in this way, if we look at it as this religious um, morality play, it's sort of this really deeply depressed nihilistic view of human morality when based on religion because if we look at it as the reason then why there is so little about the daughter and her meaning is because he he didn't care about his daughters before so why is he looking oh is it because if he doesn't have her then he can't maintain his worldview and once he has her it's all back to normal and he has forgotten and willingly so about everything else um and I wonder if because that's such an unpleasant prospect, we dislike it. Because um, I'm sure, I would hazard to guess that that's why Paul Schrader, when he caved, as he said, to pressure and changed the ending, that's why it's this way. Because obviously they were like, you wrote Taxi Driver, why won't you make this Taxi Driver? And so he's like, fine, the last 10 minutes will be Taxi Driver, but I'm gonna give you this really unsatisfying question crushing depressed like um you will never the world will never change and if you think anybody's gonna change because of how you feel you're mistaken um and i think that might be the case and i wonder if the people who tout this film as like an unsung classic are because they identify with that worldview and the people that are largely critical of it is because they, they don't like, they, you know, they resist that. I think, and critics were divided on this film. Uh, I think Roger Ebert was one of those who, who really liked this film. Um, and whereas many others are not. I, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it's got some absolute gems of lines like that bit with Nikki about um, Tulip, but also like when uh, George C. Scott beats up one of the porn uh, pornography actors, the young man who was in uh, the the video of his or the film of his daughter that he saw. Um, he hits him twice with a lamp and throws him on the bed and then looks at him and walks away going something like, relax, you're not dead. Like it, that line. And then um, there's, there's just several, Peter Boyle's character has some great lines yeah, too. Yeah, but like, um, like he's like, I don't even have the sense to lock my own fucking apartment door. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, when George C. Scott bursts in on him. Um, yeah, it's just like, it's like, it's like I'm an idiot. I don't even have the sense to lock my own door. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and by the way, that scene, so George C. Scott arrives in Hollywood to check up on the uh, detective and goes into his apartment, fires him, and makes him leave his own apartment. That is, that, that is, that is a powerful individual. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and so there's some really interesting moments. Um, Isn't guess- it Peter Doyle's character who uh, who shoots the bad guy at the end, Peter firing Boyle, yeah. into a crowd, right? Yeah. yeah. Boyle, excuse me. After fumbling the gun... Um, was it partner style i i have to say i did i loved that part of the ending i love he kind of does this like look as if like he's like oh man the bad guy got away i couldn't risk the shot but then he just starts firing he hits him like three times across the street like 50 feet away like that is not a viable shot traffic small nose handgun like that is crazy um yeah and 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 then rattan's character does get this kind of great death scene where he stumbles still holding his knife and you just see this dot of red on his back and then it cuts to his front and he obviously has an exit wound and he's just gushing blood and then he you know smashes face first into a glass pane of (laughs) you know porn window and falls down dead like it's a great moment you get this though so this is interesting thing i was wondering i'm like is because we watch george c scott's character see a what looks to be a snuff film with rattan killing two people I was half expecting that to not be real, like to him to find, like to, to beat this guy up and then find out that it was completely staged to begin with, um, which would have taken it in a whole different direction. But part of the reason is, and this is the same thing in eight millimeter. I, maybe this is just the film critic in me, but if you were to make a snuff film, those would both be terribly shot snuff films because you're staring at the killer's back and seeing nothing the whole time. Yes, it's easy for FX and cinematic, but what a terrible, terrible film technique. And I think that people would be upset paying you that kind of insane money for these films. So that was my, like, that was one of the things I was wondering. I was like, is that really what they're going to do? Um, I did think, though, it was interesting in this snuff film that the, the young man who is whipping the woman in bondage gear, who we expect to get killed, he gets killed first. And then the woman. That was, that was, that was actually a surprise. Um, yeah, I feel like in the snuff films, it's usually always the women that, that get the worst of it. And not saying she didn't get the worst of it, but they both got murdered. So I had a feeling that's a totally different. Um, that's just like running into a consensual sex scenario and killing both people and being like, <laughs> they were in a snuff film. Like, well, you kind of, you did that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So, oh, I also loved like the fake walls in the um, S&M house. Mm, they go crashing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was so good. And they were just endless. They just, there was just yeah. always another wall. I was like, what kind of house is this? Like what, yeah. where, where are the load bearing walls? Like what's going on? Yeah. It was clearly not zoned for that. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also like, like in the sex shops uh, and the pornography shops, like all of the different, um, everything the sex toys um the the you know the dildos the fake penises i also interestingly enough not that i'm an expert on this by any stretch but there were a great deal of very realistic also uncircumcised fake penises which is not something that i i think i'm like wow what changed in the last 50 years you know like every time you see even in a comedy or a movie it's a circumcised you know dildo essentially um i was like this is just a different vibe across the board also huge huge props um to uh, the um actress who who played nikki um 
trying to remember her name here. I was not season Hubley. Uh, she did a great job. I thought um, she's, she was uh, the, she was the, the the woman in the chock full of nuts in Escape from New York. But I think most people would probably know her from Vice Squad. She was princess. Um, she died. Uh, oh, no, she didn't die. Yay. I'm always, I always expect the people we review to have been dead because of various reasons. But no, she's not. But she did a great job as Nikki. And I guess there were other cast women that were, were in line before her. Um, there, there, uh, was an actual adult film actress, a very well-known film actress. And this is, this is, this is terrible. Um, this was, so they wanted, um, sorry, the names are on the tip of my tongue today. I cannot seem to remember. So I have to review my notes. So-and-so, such-and-such, so that and one so, person. Such such. Yes, thank you. Marilyn Chambers, how can I forget? <laughs> Marilyn Chambers, adult actress, very, of, of renown was they wanted her to play Nikki and the studio said, no, she's not pretty enough to be a porn star. <laughs> and you're like, what? Excuse first. What? Huh? Like it was insane. Um, but Susan Hubley does a great job. And one of her, one of the most epic scene moments is when uh, George C. Scott's character goes to hire her and it's in a peat booth which is, you know, the, the sliding glass, plexiglass booths, and they put a token in and the door comes up and you can talk to the, the sex worker. And she's like, um, yep, uh, it was Nikki or, you know, Vicky, whatever. And just puts her feet up on the, on the glass and like this total V and his face, like obviously she's not really nude when he's staring at her. I I hope there's no reason for that uh, on set, but like just that whole exchange, it was just like this, you saw the dynamic between them in two seconds and that's how it played out. And unfortunately, you know, she wishes for something better and he has no feelings in his body except for to maintain homeostasis. Um, yeah, so there's some really interesting moments in this film. I, I'm, I think, like I said, oh, there's the great line too, um, when Paul Schrader, uh, uh, not Paul Schrader, well, Paul Schrader's directing shows through in this, when George C. Scott's character is wearing the fake getup and he's casting for this fake film to find the the male actor he's looking for, and uh, he gets. This one guy, he's like, thanks, we have your number. And he gets more progressively. He's not even looking at the guys when they come in. Like, it's like, if they don't fit the bill, he's not even looking at them. And the kid's like, well, don't you want to see what I'm working with? And he's like, excuse me? He goes, my junk. And he's like, sure, why not? And the kid just <laughs> takes his belt off, drops his pants. And did you just get the shot from above his pants between his calves at George C. Scott? Thank you. <laughs> it's just this intense like the burnout the burnout is real um uh, yeah so i think that there's I, I i'm finding myself liking the movie the longer i sit with it um but it is problematic uh not so much in the social concerns because i think that we are not meant to see jersey scott's character as a hero figure because he fails in that at the at the last moments he truly fails and um and that's both fresh and depressing. 
So that's an interesting take. So I would recommend this to film buffs because people who haven't seen this and George Scott fans, I mean, he always sells it. Uh, Paul Schrader fans too. This is kind of the black sheep of his catalog. And I mean, he's written so many brilliant Scorsese films. I mean, he wrote Bringing Out the Dead with Nick Cage. Um, he of course wrote Taxi Driver. He's just, he's a very, very good writer. So when you see a film like this, I do think it pays to dig deep to see what you can get because it's probably a case of too much content, hiding nuance versus uh, too little content, um, creating nuance, if that makes sense. Uh, there's so much goodness that he, it actually hinders the effect versus there's not enough to read. Um, let's move on. Mandy, would you recommend this film? And if so, why or why not? Eh, again, like a soft recommend it, there, like you, like the more we talked about it, the more I was like, yeah, there's actually a lot of stuff that I found um, very amusing slash like entertaining about this, but none of them were the main characters um, like sense of good <laughs> or mm. drive or um, competency in what he was trying to achieve. Like he's just flailing around trying to find his daughter the whole time. It was really uncomfortable like uh, just how bad at it he was most of the it time um uh, but i mean like it's i'd almost say i'd recommend this over eight millimeter um just because it is fairly novel in, in as far as a film to see whereas eight millimeter felt a lot more like um a thriller revenge detective film something we've seen little, before yeah exactly so this felt like something i had not seen before um it's got like that period feel to it because it was definitely kind of meant to be filmed like uh a current date mm -hmm. um that it was done so i thought that that was interesting well but i would also say um that i had similar feelings to uh a video short called how to speak minnesotan uh so i would recommend that all right. It's on How YouTube. Minnesota. Check it out. YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to say too, it's interesting because as mentioned, Greg, I know you mentioned it, Joe, like you were expecting more hardcore since that was the title. And obviously mm. there is no actual hardcore in this film, um, meaning no penetration or anything like that. But this film, I actually did, there is much more nudity and sexual content and it's, it's real pornography yeah. in this film than eight millimeter. It definitely was um, I think in many ways, uh, this is a weird gendered term to use, but it was ballsy to do this film because the amount of nudity, it's actually, you become inured to it um, because it's so constant uh, there, you know, between the strippers and whatever. And I will say that the actual, the, the, the chunk of the purported eight millimeter <gasps> oh, short. There's a lightsaber fight between two strippers oh, right that i totally good. forgot yeah. <laughs> hilarious i was like man why was i not born in this in the in the 60s like was in the <laughs> 70s um yeah that was pretty great uh, but it, also i will say that the the sex scene that we see of his daughter i was shocked um to see it to be honest because it does look like an underage girl engaging in sexual activity with two men and um, the, the actress, this was her only feature, this was her only feature film, um, Ela Davis. And uh, she was 23 at the time of this. She certainly looks younger. Um, and so she was a great cast in that way, but it's, it's unsettling. It was very well done and they didn't shy away from it. It's, it's unsettling. Uh, and I think maybe we all should look at that because when you watch pornography, which again, 
power to sex workers. OnlyFans, keep the money for yourself. That's great. I, you know, be your own boss, do it. Um, don't start a podcast. It is not lucrative. Um, <laughs> and, but it's, uh, without makeup and stuff, many of the people doing pornography are, to those of us in our thirties, essentially seem like children. And that's not a read or a dig. Uh, you certainly your own life, do what you want. But the act that they didn't make these characters look older, they actually made them look probably younger is it was bold and it was it was upsetting it was a choice and i think it worked really well also just a weird side thing in ela davis she actually joined uh, a group called the yippies and then she died uh, uh fairly young um living uh, of ms but she was living with the the rainbow family which was a very is a very strange cult so check that out it's very interesting uh, kind of a weird 70s hold over there tad would you recommend hardcore and uh, why or why not and to who? I think I have to, I, I couldn't help, but I got the same vibe. Uh, I might mirror if I'm remembering my own review correctly. Um, when we watched uh, Rosemary's Baby, it was. We did not watch Rosemary's Baby. Uh, sorry. What was the, uh, what was it? What, what wasn't it? It was the. Oh, uh, it's Alive. It's Alive. Sorry. I know. I know they're, they're, it's yes. a similar premise. <laughs> it, era. It, Good era. Yeah. So. Um, I had a hard time recommending It's Alive largely just because even though there are a lot of interesting aspects to the film, the film as a whole doesn't grab me and therefore it's hard for me to kind of give a solid recommendation for it. This is, this is similar. Like I did like the middle of the movie. I do like some aspects of it, but when you take the whole thing and look at it from a, from a, you know, a, a higher perspective, it kind of fell apart for me and I couldn't really pegged down why necessarily aside from I you know I have no problems recommending a movie that starts off slow and picks up later I have no problem with a movie that is generally at a slow pace but has some real depth and this movie do does clearly have some depth it just it didn't resonate to me resonate for me and I can't really find any analog I mean basically it's like eight millimeter is like the the more modern Again, it, it, it's accurate. It's a very sort of a like almost modern remake, but it's not, you know, it's just in such a similar vein. And eight millimeters of movie I love, and this kind of felt like a prototype. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, a, a footnote in film history, but there's nothing for me to, to chew on at this point for it. So hard. For Greg, would you recommend hardcore? And if so, why and who? Um, I'm gonna have to go. No, um, I mean for a lot of the same reasons Tad said. Um, mostly being, I I would I'd say go watch Eight Millimeter instead. I think it's a more engaging film for all its faults. Um, I would also I I just felt uh, hardcore with it was it was dated without being entertaining. I didn't feel it added anything to the conversation. I mean it's it's a stepping stone. Um, it's it's the nine inch nails hurt to uh, eight millimeters Johnny Cash. Um, <laughs> sort of, I yeah, I, it's it doesn't uh, have a stance on as, as was mentioned. It doesn't have a stance on pornography. In fact, pornography and sex work is truly background to everything that's there. Um, I would say uh, kind of an aside because I listened to it recently. If you're a fan of the podcast This American Life, they had a episode. Mm -hmm. uh, called Secrets, I think was one of the more recent ones where the third story is a sex worker 
who also happens to be a mom that's trying to hide from her kids that she's a sex worker because of covid and they all have to obviously live together if you want a a very interesting look at sex work go go listen to that that was very riveting and modern and you might learn something so and also in that vein uh, i'd love to have her on the show if she's ever willing i think uh, at stripper writer i believe is her handle on instagram and i'm sure she's on other platforms as well uh is a, a, a stripper and writer and uh, she has some very interesting thoughts and very obviously being in the industry has some excellent insight uh and and opinions and views that are are i think inarguably valid Jeff, would you recommend Hardcore? Uh, and if so, to who and why? Um, I'm just going to go with a no on this one. Um, I'd say maybe watch it as like a double feature with 8mm if you're going to watch 8mm. I think it's actually somewhat interesting seeing some of the like dialogue beats that are mirrored between the two films. Um, some of the uh, like narrative structure that's mirrored between the two films. Um so from like a movie buff standpoint, that's kind of interesting to see kind of the history of it and maybe seeing some of the um, like inspirations for some of the, the parts of 8mm. Uh, I just can't get over the, the ending. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I hear like your points on it, Nate, but it's still like, it's still just so, like it wasn't even a good detective like film like my, my sister mentioned. Like it, it, it was like, it was good right up until that great scene in the hotel where he's, he's got the mustache on. And then it's just like, the whole story is, oh, Tom said, uh, you know, Jerry knows where she is. And then you go to Jerry and then Jerry tells you it's Ben. And then Ben's like, oh, go see Diane. It's just, it's like, it, you're just like following this really boring. Like, quest. It, that, yeah, a, a it's real just, detective uh, job as opposed to. Exactly. It's <laughs> like something more interesting that we should be seeing in cinema. It just you like. Know, that, it's like- probably one of those industries where like you know a lot of people like in this yeah. but like it seemed in both of these movies it felt absolutely okay. ridiculous sure that like one random person that's not very high up on the totem pole like knows everybody in, like in eight millimeter california is like, bumping everyone everywhere and you're right. like you work for under you, a couple hundred dollars a week yeah. in a porn store like, like you clock in and out, dude. You sell like, battery operated vaginas, vaginas. poorly. Yeah. Um, Half-heartedly. Yeah. That was a great, that was a great line. Right. I will also say the detective work in both of these is questionable. I do like an eight millimeter just to run back um, that Nicolas Cage does a lot of um, role-playing where he pretends to be somebody else and just speaks with authority and it gets him uh, information because that is uh, from, from the detectives that I have met and interviewed it is very true. It's in real uh, life. And, and also, uh, I will say that it's ridiculous, the plot point that uh, someone making a snuff film would leave a tattoo on their hand heavily visible in the film. That's just lazy. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, so it sounds like I'm probably the only recommender on hardcore, uh, but that's okay. If you do watch it, and I personally suggest you do, although I think everyone's opinions are valid, you know, your mileage may vary. Watch, especially for Hal Williams' short cameo. Uh, Hal Williams, of course, the, the officer from Sanford and Son, uh, as um, Big Dick Black. <laughs> that is a pretty great moment when he comes in and he accuses George D. Scott of being racist uh, for not casting him and gives his spiel. It's fantastic. He does a great job. It's one of those 
it's if you if you've ever seen uh, if you're me you've seen Geely several times and it's the Christopher Walken scene where he comes in and just goes off in front of the camera and then walks out of the movie uh it's it's beautiful that so whole that, scene in the you can almost just watch that scene in the hotel if you're not gonna if you're not gonna watch the film like maybe you can just like fast forward to that hotel it's gonna scene. play like a comedy until the brutal uh the brutal lamp beating yeah. um yeah i i totally get it uh all right well that's it for this episode of cult and classic podcast to play us out as always is the chud with all about evil thank you guys so much for listening and being supporters of cult and classic podcast as always you can send us recommendations questions interests, anything you want to cult and classic podcast at gmail.com follow us on instagram at cult and classic podcast and on facebook.com slash cult and classic podcast guys we have a really cool promotion that's going to be going on and it's on right now. If you write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and you send us a screenshot to Colton Classic Podcast at gmail.com uh, or via Instagram at Colton Classic Podcast, send us a screenshot of your review once it posts. We will send you, as long as you give us your address, uh, some stickers and a pin. And that is ongoing. So do it. Get your friends to do it. Uh, if you write a review and your friend writes a review and uh you don't want to tell your friend and you want two pins tell us send them both i will send you two pins i am not above that leave your honest review we love it uh and i assume your honest review is positive because otherwise why are you listening to this podcast thank you guys so much have a great day and we'll hear you next time hey everyone thanks for listening to colton classic podcast this podcast is important to me but what's more important are the rights privileges and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.